Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. The Universe Next Door is supported by the C.S. Lewis Society, Trinity College of Florida, and supported by gifts from listeners just like you. Discover more resources and continue the conversation at apologetics.org. And now, your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward. When I was a teenager, I was obsessed for a short amount of time with the famous conspiracy that Paul McCartney of the Beatles died in a car accident in 1966, and the band replaced him with a look-alike imposter. And interestingly enough, this look-alike imposter actually did exist. There was a guy who looked a lot like Paul McCartney. He won awards for it. Uh, And there were subliminal messages found when you played Beatles records backwards, for example, such as Paul is dead or John Lennon saying at the end of Strawberry Fields Forever, I buried Paul. And many had pointed out that album covers seemed to undeniably point at this conspiracy, as well as including Sgt. Pepper's uh, album appearing to be a depiction of Paul's funeral and all kinds of other subtle clues in their artwork. Now, this lookalike imposter, like I said, did exist, but he also continued to exist after Paul McCartney was supposedly dead. Uh, and some of the Beatles' best songs were recorded after the conspiracy that Paul McCartney died. So if the fake Paul McCartney was the one who they replaced the real Paul McCartney with, I guess they should have had the fake Paul McCartney all along. Uh, so to make a long story short, there was no logical reason to think that the Beatles were doing anything more than messing with people, having fun, and there were a variety of reasons to conclude that Paul McCartney was not actually dead, including the fact that he himself disagrees with the fact that he's dead. And for this reason, the Paul is dead conspiracy simply became a fun pastime for Beatles fans. Now, we are going to demonstrate why the conspiracy theories surrounding the resurrection of Jesus Christ are no different than this conspiracy. They are not backed up by any serious historical evidence. They oppose the reliable data that we do have. And for those reasons, they're simply a fun pastime for those hoping to defeat the story that changed the entire world. Before we start, though, let me tell you that we are doing a promo right now where we are going to give out the book called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus Christ, one of the best books on the resurrection ever written. Everything is covered in here. Um, It's written by Gary Habermas and Mike Lacona. Mike Lacona is going to be on the show this week, just a few days after his big debate with, uh, with Bart Ehrman, and Gary Habermas will be on the show after Mike Lacona. So, If you send in a question about the resurrection to information at apologetics.org, we will answer your question. And if you get it in soon enough, one of these guys might be able to answer your question. So send your question to information at apologetics.org, and we are going to choose 10 people to give a free copy of the case of the resurrection to. We will mail it to you. So send your question about the resurrection to information at apologetics.org. Well, let me start off by saying that the reason the conspiracy theory objection to the resurrection is proposed is not because it is recorded in history as an alternative to the resurrection. It is proposed because those who reject the notion of miracles refuse to accept any explanation that Jesus was raised from the dead and therefore any other explanation, no matter how lacking in evidence it may be, is therefore more likely than the resurrection. Make sure you understand this point. 
they are not proposing this because it's recorded in history. They are proposing an objection in a conspiracy theory resurrection narrative because they say it is more likely than the resurrection, even though it's not backed up by history. Critics of Christianity, such as Bart Ehrman and a number of others, have made claims that the resurrection is an extraordinary event and therefore it requires extraordinary evidence. Now, first of all, that's not true. Historians cannot change the process that they use to examine history based off of whether or not they want to accept a claim. That's called bias, not objectivity. Second, even though this isn't true, we could play that game and we could say that there's actually more evidence for the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth than there is for any other event for the surrounding period in human history. So bear in mind that those who propose conspiracy theories for the empty tomb are doing so on an account of their bias, not an account of an honest, objective investigation of the facts and data available. Now, the most famous conspiracy theory is that the apostles made up the whole story either by falsely believing that Jesus rose or by stealing the body. Now, it's important to note that this objection actually uh, goes back all the way to the time of the New Testament. Matthew 28, 12 through 15 says, And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So Matthew was written in many scholars' opinions, in my opinion, somewhere between 64 and 70 AD before the destruction uh, of the Temple of Jerusalem. And so starting at the time of the empty tomb to 30 years after the event, this story that the body was stolen was still circulating. And so not only was this a very, very old theory going back to the cross or to the resurrection, the empty tomb, but it's also something that the apostles were well aware of. They had knew this theory was circulating. So first of all, Pascal gave a very simple objection to this theory and to the idea that uh, the apostles were either deceived or deceivers. If the apostles lied, it only would have taken one of them under torture to admit that the resurrection didn't really happen. There is never a recording of a Christian martyr admitting that Jesus' missing body was a conspiracy. Not one in history. Many martyrs have died. Many martyrs have denounced Christ when, when being murdered. Many believers over history. Not as many as, as the contrary. But none of them had said that the resurrection didn't happen. There's not a single account. Another issue with the apostles being deceived is that people don't imagine that a man has physically risen from the dead. Now, you might hear this argument thrown around, um, and, it, and it is true that somewhere around 8% of those mourning a loved one claim to have seen or experienced their presence in some sense after they die, which I think can primarily be explained by grieving. But we're not talking about 8%. Uh, and we're not talking about seeing a ghost or, or so on and so forth. We're talking about 100% of the apostles, not just believing they saw a ghost, although that was some of the apostles' first impression, but we're talking about all of them talking with, eating with, and even physically touching the man they followed for three and a half years, the man they knew very well. And this all happened after he was tortured and murdered on a cross and then locked in a tomb. 
Now, if the apostles had simply been told that Jesus raised from the dead and, and none of them had ever seen him, well, this would be a whole different story. This, this theory might be more plausible that they were deceived. But that isn't what is recorded in the historical records of the four Gospels or the epistles. The apostles being deceived is not a viable option. In addition to the fact that they believed to have seen the resurrected Christ, they also went on to change the world spreading this story. And of course, we're just focusing on the, the apostles and the conspiracy theory specifically today. We're going to get into the witnesses in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, the 500, for example, in another episode when we continue talking about the objections to the resurrection. But they believe to have seen the risen Christ, and they went on to change the entire world, spreading this story. So in addition to suggesting that the apostles imagined Jesus physically raised from the dead and it appeared to them, or simply lied about it, their imagination or lie gave them the ability, the power, and the motivation to sacrifice their own lives, spreading this lie or deception. Remember that. Number one, all of the apostles were hiding during the time of the crucifixion and burial, with the exception of John. It just isn't realistic to suggest that they could go from being terrified and from hiding and fearing for their lives to boldly proclaiming Jesus' resurrection to the world. Number two, at the time of the resurrection, the apostles clearly didn't understand Jesus' statements during his life that he would raise from the dead after three days. They didn't understand it. That's more than clear in the Gospels. They had no idea he was coming back, so it makes no sense to propose a theory in which they made up a story about him coming back from the dead when they never expected him to. They would have no reason to want the world to hate them and to eventually kill them and torture them for something that they made up not even knowing that they had a reason to make it up to begin with. It just doesn't add up. This is what I would call a common sense approach to responding to these objections. Not to mention, it wasn't in the apostles' character to create such a lie. They were not cunning liars. They were simple, honest fishermen. That's what all of the available data tells us. That's what all of the stories about the apostle point to, that they were honest, simple fishermen, and nothing proves sincerity like martyrdom. So the common sense argument makes it highly improbable that the apostles could have been deceived or deceivers. Now, we, before we move on to the logistics of why the apostles or anyone else couldn't have stolen the body, um, even if they did want to, there isn't an objection or there is an objection that could possibly be raised at some point. And you've probably heard this objection raised by somebody before. I've heard it many times, more than I can count. Someone at this point may say, well, what about people from other religions who have died for what they believed? That doesn't make it true, does it? For example, those who drove planes into the Twin Towers on 9-11, a horrific event, well, they may have certainly believed that what they were doing was in accordance with their religion. The ISIS terrorist group may certainly have believed that sending suicide bombers into the public square was in accordance with their beliefs. So somebody may come along and say, well, What's the difference? Who cares? Uh, people die for their beliefs all the time. That doesn't mean anything. But there's a very important distinction to be made here, and that is that the apostles weren't simply dying for their beliefs. They were dying for what they witnessed with their own eyes and what they actually lived and experienced. They weren't dying for a blind belief. They were dying for what they witnessed. 
Now, even if everything we just said wasn't true and we pretended we never said it, and even if the apostles had reason to steal Jesus' body, which they don't, and they had good reason and insufficient uh, ability to stage the greatest conspiracy of all time, of all history, they couldn't have pulled it off even if they wanted to. But here are a few other possibilities that we can quickly rule out. In 1965, there was a book written called The Passover Plot, and in this plot, we mentioned this, uh, and I think I think in our last episode about the swoon theory, because this is also part of uh, the Passover plot, but in this book, it was proposed that Joseph of Arimathea, who all four Gospels agree, removed Jesus from the cross in order to place him in his own private tomb before sundown on the Sabbath, stole the body of Jesus. Now, the reason you probably haven't heard this theory since 1965, unless you really enjoy doing research, is that the theory can be easily dismissed. It doesn't hold any water. So Joseph of Arimathea not only had no motivation to steal Jesus' body, but he had every reason not to. He was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, who, by the way, were the owners of most of the rolling rock-style tombs that archaeologists have discovered um, from the first century, interestingly enough. He had everything to lose by staging a fake event in which Jesus was raised from the dead. He he would have lost his position as a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. And in addition to this, the Apostle John, as well as some of the women, witnessed Jesus being placed in the tomb by Joseph and Nicodemus. And even if Jesus had a reason to stage, or Joseph had a reason to stage this conspiracy, they would have simply uncovered the body and foiled the whole plan. This is not a plausible theory. Another not-so-popular objection is that either the Jewish leadership or the Romans had stolen the body, and that's pretty much just self-explanatory. I don't think we need to really spend any time on that. Both of them wanted Jesus dead, and they wanted Christianity defeated before it became any more popular. They were united in that. So the conspiracy theory, the main conspiracy theory, is that the apostles stole Jesus' body and claimed that he had risen from the dead. Now, we've already talked about uh, why the apostles had no motive to steal the body, considering they'd be changing the world and risking their lives for a lie that didn't really happen. But there are a number of reasons why we can say that even if they did want to, there's no way they could have stolen the body of Jesus. So, number one, peasant fishermen could not have overpowered the Roman guards who were watching the tomb. They would have been wiped out instantly. Roman soldiers were trained to kill, and the Roman government, who was attempting uh, to prevent yet another uproar of the Jews, would have had no issue with the apostles being killed while trying to commit a crime. Not to mention, if the Roman soldiers allowed the body to be stolen, which we'll see is impossible or very implausible anyway, even if they did allow it, the Roman soldiers had the incentive of knowing that they would be killed. The government would have them killed if they were to allow uh, something like this to happen. So it's just not plausible from that angle. There's no way they could have overpowered the Roman guards who were guarding the tomb. Now, if hypothetically the apostles could have overpowered the Roman guards, did Pilate just clean up the bodies of the guards and pretend it never happened while allowing Christianity to spread like wildfire? Or are we proposing that the apostles didn't kill the guards because they were unarmed with possibly the exception of a sword or a dagger, which everyone carried around. And rather, they just beat the Roman army into submission and hogtied them. You know, think about these things. Do we really think a group of teenagers beat up the Roman soldiers and tied them up? Now, even after 
the young untrained apostles defeated the Roman soldiers and tied them up, they couldn't have moved the stone even if they wanted to. We know that these stones are likely somewhere between one and two tons, two to four thousand pounds. That's heavier than some of our vehicles today that we drive around, and it was placed on a downward slope downward slope because it was designed to keep the tomb closed. Dead people are not meant to come in and out of a tomb. You know, think about that concept. It was designed to keep that person in there, that body in there, forever. Corpses are not meant to come out of tombs, so this rock was placed on a downward, downward slope in order to keep the door shut. And like I said, they were two to 4,000 pounds. We're not talking about a simple little rolling rock that we can push out of the way. It was meant to keep them in forever. And now in addition to all of these highly improbable feats of defeating the Roman soldiers and moving the several thousand pound tomb, the grave robbers apparently weren't in any rush because they would have had to unwrap Jesus' body that was wrapped in linen. They would have had to place the linen shroud in the tomb and neatly fold the face cloth. That's how the tomb was found. That's how the empty tomb was found. The shroud was neatly set aside and the, fold cl- the face cloth was actually folded. And now, I don't think we need to spend time on the ridiculousness of suggesting that the Roman soldiers were asleep during all of this. Now, this brings to mind a more recent event in which prison guards mysteriously fell asleep, and the majority of Americans don't believe that story, even though we don't have any eyewitness testimony to the contrary. It's just the common sense theory invoked here again. So common sense needs to be used in all of these responses. Now, let's say all the stuff we had just disproven was all true. Let's say the apostles beat up the Roman soldiers, tied them up, they fell asleep, whatever. Maybe they beat them up and then they fell asleep. Uh, maybe that's what happened. Now, let's say all of the stuff happened. They, they moved the giant several thousand pound boulder. They got the body out. Well, even if all of that happened, even if the apostles lied and did the unthinkable and the impossible or at least highly improbable, they certainly would not have gotten anybody in Jerusalem, the place of the crucifixion, to believe their story. This is a quote from William Lane Craig. He says, The Gospels were written in such temporal and geographical proximity to the events they record that it would have been almost impossible to fabricate the events. The the fact that the disciples were able to proclaim the resurrection in Jerusalem in the face of their enemies just a few weeks after the crucifixion shows that what they proclaimed was true, for they could have never proclaimed the resurrection and been believed under such circumstances had it not occurred. Remember that the apostles began to spread Christianity In the same city that Jesus was tried, that Jesus was arrested, and that Jesus was tortured and crucified in front of the public, and all of a sudden they're going to go out into this same city that could easily debunk their theory, that could easily say, well, here's the body, it never really, the resurrection never really happened. They're going to go out into that same city just days or weeks after the crucifixion and start proclaiming that Jesus was raised from the dead. The same apostles who were hiding and who were terrified, the same Peter who denied Jesus three times as he was being tried. I mean, this is just not plausible. It just doesn't make any sense. And that's why none of these theories that we're talking about, especially uh, the apostles being uh, being these grave robbers who had staged the best conspiracy theory in history, they're not recorded. The only time this is recorded is when the apostles writing the uh, gospel narratives are saying, well, this is a story that the Jews have been circulating for so many decades. Um, it's just not a plausible theory. And of course, they didn't give any time to it. They were simply recording what was factual in history at the time. 
Now, we have two common objections left that try to eliminate the idea of the apostles either being deceived or deceivers. Um, And those are, number one, the hallucination theory that all of the witnesses who saw Jesus alive after his death were hallucinating. Uh, And then number two, there's the myth theory that the disciples intended for the resurrection narrative to be taken as myth or as metaphor, or that they were just myth or legend in general. Uh, And we will cover those two objections in detail in our next two episodes regarding arguments against the resurrection. Uh, but those are going to be interestingly enough, interesting enough because they're they're very easily disproven. As I'd said, there is no like plausible theory that holds up to the resurrection. There's nothing that makes as much sense as what's actually recorded in history, what we actually have in the nearly six thousand manuscripts of the New Testament. Nothing is even close to the actual story that's proposed and that we believe as Christians, and we believe it because it's fact. We're not functioning off of blind faith, like the atheists would, for example. Now, if you are listening to this episode on our Monday night release time, um, be sure to come back tomorrow, Tuesday, because we're going to interview Dr. Mike Lacona on defending the resurrection just a few days after his uh, recent debate with Bart Ehrman. So make sure to come back. And if you're listening to this episode after the time that it's released, of course, you can go and it's already uploaded, so you can listen to it now. Uh, But it's going to be really cool. We're really grateful for the opportunity to have him on in such a unique uh, time and situation. So check that out and share this podcast with somebody. That's how we get the gospel out. That's how more people learn to defend uh, the resurrection and to defend the Christian faith in general, but also skeptics and and non-believers. Send them this podcast too. Have them listen to and have them weigh the evidence and have a discussion back and forth with them. That's how you know, that's how we get to point people to Christ. That's how we convince people of the gospel, um, the truth of the gospel that we that we so graciously get to receive as a gift, not something that we earn, not something that we give any merit toward, but God loved us so much that while we were sinners, he gave his life for us. And while we were still in rebellion against him, he died on the cross and he raised from the dead to bring us with him. And that is the good news of the resurrection that we'll be celebrating in a few days on Easter or on Resurrection Day. So we hope that you get the opportunity to do that with us as followers of Jesus Christ. Well, thank you so much for listening to The Universe Next Door. I can't wait for the next episode, and we hope you have a great week. You've been listening to The Universe Next Door with Dr. Tom Woodward, sponsored by the C.S. Lewis Society and Trinity College of Florida, and supported through the gifts of listeners just like you. To gather resources, continue the conversation, and support The Universe Next Door with your financial gifts, go to apologetics.org. That's apologetics.org. And join us again next time as we continue to seek the truth about life, faith, and worldview in The Universe Next Door. Next Door.